Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2009 Tanner Lectures on Human Values, presented by President Richard C. Levin and Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, feature two lectures by composer John Adams. In this first lecture, Adams speaks on Dr. Faustus and his composition, reflections on Thomas Mann's fictional composer. In these two talks, today and tomorrow, I want to examine two 20th century examples of how archetypical myths can be used for the basis of creating artworks that interweave timeless themes of power and identity with events both historical and philosophical from the recent past. The first, which we'll do today, is Thomas Mann's final great novel, Dr. Faustus, a book that is dear to most composers and certainly the most extensive and brilliantly imagined treatment of the act of musical creation anywhere in literature. The other, which we'll do tomorrow, is a real life story and that of the well-known and controversial physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. It is Oppenheimer who in, is the central figure in uh, my opera composed uh, and premiered in 2005, Dr. Atomic and his stupendous achievement and ultimate personal and political crisis tells a story that has eerie resonances with the original Faust myth. Both of these subjects, Mann's novel and Oppenheimer's shepherding of the first atomic bomb, represent heavily traveled domain in recent study and literature. The Mann novel alone has become the wellspring of an endless river of scholarship by historians of 20th century Germany, both old and new musicologists, and by those who write on behalf of the ever-burgeoning field of musical aesthetics. The novel itself and the background of its creation has an impressive cast of characters, Thomas Mann himself, Beethoven, particularly the Beethoven of the very, very late uh, piano sonatas, and, and Mises Solemnis, the devil, Theodore Adorno, not to be confused, <laughs> Germany, past and present, and many other themes. Oppenheimer, already a cause celebre from the day of the first atomic bomb, uh, has never been out of the public sight, but recently has been more than ever the subject of biography, dramatic treatment, and much moral philosophizing. One might ask me to find less familiar territory to scout for these lectures, Nonetheless, they are figures that have captivated my imagination enough that I feel, feel compelled to write about them. As I say, Dr. Faustus is the only novel of quality that has a composer as its principal subject. There are others that feature composers. Romain Rolland's gigantic Roman à Fleuve, Jean Christophe, written at the turn of the 20th century and also featuring a German composer hero, was in its time hugely successful. But Roland was more concerned with painting the artist as an archetype of 19th century individualism, as the inspired romantic, buffeted by the storms of critical indifference, and like his model Beethoven, as swimming against the current of unpredictable and ever-changing social forces. According to the Debussy biographer Edward Lockspeiser, Jean-Christophe is governed largely by its author's pan-European utopianism and a profound disgust for what he felt was a prevailing provincialism in both French and German cultural life. 
against the ingrown preciosity of France and Germany's decayed romanticism, Romain Roland offers his young barbarian Jean-Christophe, whose moral purity and uncorrupt creative force stands in stark contrast to the decaying social and aesthetic order that surrounds him. Roland's novel may indeed be a work of social and historical significance, and I confess to have dipped gingerly into it, but uh, I'm not a reader of the whole eight volumes. However, uh, its literary value from, from my modest sampling seems to have diminished over time, and today uh, it's seldom read or discussed. Marcel Proust also includes a composer among his cast of characters in A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, and also in his earlier novel, uh, Jean Santoy. The solitary, uh, the character in, in the later work, of course, is the solitary, vir virtually anonymous Van Toy, a village organist and music teacher whose compositions are, in the manner of Emily Dickinson's poems, only discovered and appreciated after his death. Unlike Thomas Mann's fictional composer, Adrian Leverkuhn, Proust's Van Toy is not a major character, but a case could be made that his music is, that a certain phrase in his violin sonata is a psychological leitmotif that rises virtually to the status of being a character in the novel. Proust's writing about the listening experience is deeply intuitive and reveals a mind that is every bit as penetrating in matters of musical cognition as that of Thomas Mann, or for that matter, many professional musicians. But the Dr. Faust's story is utterly unique in the canon of Western literature because it prods the imponderables of the creative process, touching on both the technical nitty-gritty of the act of composing as well as giving graphic testimony to the shifting sands which are the, an artist's doubts and inspirations, the flashes of ecstasy and the sudden seemingly gratuitous descents into despair. Mann was perfectly candid about how his composer was in part modeled by Friedrich Nietzsche. The excoriating self-criticism, the habitual reclusiveness, the impossibly high moral and artistic standards, the failed attempts at human interaction, the lapidary density of artistic expression, and the correspondingly minuscule audience of of contemporary admirers. All of these are qualities that Thomas Mann imports from the German philosopher to his fictional counterpart, the composer Leverkuhn. So the question always arises for us composers, do I see myself in Adrian Leverkuhn? Do I see my composer friends in Adrian Leverkuhn? Do I see him in com composers from another era? Does the writing of music as Leverkuhn does it bear any resemblance to how I do it? Is Thomas Mann's version of a composer struggling to corral what Wallace Stevens called the flawed words and stubborn sounds of his raw materials? Do they represent an ideal of how the creative act should be approached? Bringing this story to life during the apocalyptic moment of World War II, composing the novel while watching it from afar, exiled in Southern California, was in every sense a tragic fulfillment for this very worldly, sophisticated, and ultimately conservative writer. What makes Dr. Faustus unique among novels is that the author, several years after completing it, wrote another book that details the creative process of composing this, his last great work. This book, 
The German title is Die Entstehung des Dr. Faustus, and, and it's known in English as the story of a novel. Is an exceptionally valuable document, not just for lovers of Thomas Mann's fiction, but to composers, novelists, and to anyone who would undertake a complex and difficult artistic enterprise on a grand scale. The writing of Dr. Faustus was in itself a drama, not only because of the author's status as Germany's most famous novelist writing in exile, but also because fame or no fame, Mann suffered frequent bouts of uncertainty even to the point of despair in the course of its completion. He worried about the quality of what he'd written. He fretted over his status as a great novelist, comparing himself to James Joyce. He followed good days with days of infertility and depression. He monitored his physical health with an obsession that frequently caused him to confuse it with the status of his work. He was intensely aware of his place in society as an established, successful, and highly honored artist. Only the very fortunate few are lucky enough to be able to continue at the highest level of their art and take it into, the, into their maturity. Thomas Mann was one of them, and we have to admire the stubbornness of his personality and his very healthy ego that provided him with the will to produce at a late point in his life a book requiring the acquisition of a vast amount of technical knowledge, in his case, music theory, and turn it into a novel of such richness and emotional power. When I say that Thomas Mann is nonetheless a conservative, I mean that despite the breadth of his achievement and the depth of his imagination, he remains an immensely self-conscious artist, a nearly perfect case study of what Schiller called the sentimental poetic mind as opposed to the naive. Almost everything that Thomas Mann wrote came filtered through his vast, art historical awareness. The miracle of his oeuvre is that the burden of history rare, rarely suffocates his narrative. He's a writer who can pack his characters, their surroundings, and the historical context with rich meaning, yet avoid it being so overly learned and dense as to collapse from its own weight. Mann avoids being buried under the mass of history because he's essentially a parodist. His creative impulses were wedded by archetypal models from the past, whether the original 16th century Frankfurt chapbook version of Faust or the Old Testament stories that he utilized in Joseph and his brothers. He said, in matters of style, I really no longer admit anything but parody. In this, I'm close to Joyce. To write parody means to return to the past, but to do so with a sense of awareness, a sense of irony and paradox, but also with a light hand. Parody enthusiastically embraces ambiguity, the contradictory, the paradoxical. It is the perfect postmodern gesture. If we view modernism as an attempt to establish a coherent symbolic order as the impetus towards determining deep and enduring truths, then the postmodernist position would be a response to or an acknowledgement of the central impossibility of knowledge, of the contradictory nature of truth, and of the constant negotiations in and around knowledge systems. The historian Eric Heller called Thomas Mann the ironic German and said that to discuss Dr. Faustus means, in more than one respect, to return to the past. 
But it is above all Thomas Mann's own past that is recalled by this life of a composer in whom genius and the passion to create are yet threatened with sterility. Possessed as he is of the knowledge that the, the tradition of his medium is supposedly so utterly exhausted that to work within it would be to condemn the artist to banality and to break through requires sacrifices and ingenuities not thought of even in heaven. What is brave about Dr. Faustus is the author's willingness to assume the vast technical machinery of music theory and make of it an accurate and coherent subject for fiction. What is cautious and conservative is the form and narrative structure of the novel and the author's unwillingness to break his own boundaries. Mann's patterns and his habits, his modes of telling a story were established decades earlier in works like Budenbrooks and Magic Mountain, and they had proven accessible and popular to the point that the impetus to depart from them, uh, from the tried and true, simply didn't exist for him. And I might just as a sidebar mention that uh, as a member of the community of, uh, of a German and uh, Central European emigres in living in uh, the Los Angeles area during World War II, um, you know, a group that in included Schoenberg and, and uh, Franz Verfall, Heinrich Mann, um, Bruno Walter, and, and many others, and Adorno himself, uh, that Mann was uh, one of the few who was, who was still substantially wealthy because his his international copyright still paid him a great deal of money. We might even ask which, if any, of these earmarks, uh, of those earmarks that the critic Edward Said identifies as characteristic of a late style, apply to Dr. Faustus. In his posthumously published book, which is called On Late Style, Edward Said, taking his inspiration from a 1937 essay on Beethoven's last works, by Theodore Adorno points to a definable quality of lateness in certain great works of art. The lateness he finds comes in one of two kinds. One is the sort of ripeness is all category, characterized by a feeling of harmony and resolution and wise resignation, the kind of mood and worldview that typifies, for example, Shakespeare's Tempest or Winter's Tale or maybe the late intermezzi of Brahms, or even Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus. This so-called fulfilled form of lateness might also include a sense of rediscovered youthfulness, as is the case with Verdi, who wrote uh, Othello when he was uh, in his early 70s, and Falstaff was premiered when he was 80. But Said also sees a different, almost radically opposed kind of late style one in which serenity is not at all attained, but rather intransigence, difficulty, and unresolved contradiction, what he terms a sort of deliberately unproductive productiveness, a moment when the artist who was fully in command of his medium nevertheless abandons communication with the established order of which he is a part and achieves a contradictory, alienating relationship with it. The Beethoven of the last three piano sonatas, the late quartets, the Mrs. Solemnis, and the Ninth Symphony, of course, is the model par excellence of this contradictory version of lateness. And in fact, 
Beethoven in the guise of the composer of the last works really is virtually a, a, a character in Dr. Faustus. These works and those by others such as Goethe and Ibsen display a plethora of unmastered material, according to Adorno, and constitute an irreconcilable agonistic struggle between the inner subjective impulses and the outer objective norms. Now, I just want to mention that um, about 15 years ago, I, I toured uh, with an ensemble performing, among other things, on our program works by Frank Zappa. And uh, we used to have a talk before every concert, and um, I could always see who the Zappa aficionados in the audience were because they sat with their arms folded uh, with a look of, um, okay, show me. And uh, I, I do notice that every time there's a mention of Adorno, the same posse tends to uh, gather. So uh, I just want to admit that when it comes to critical theory, I'm, I'm a total babe in the woods. Uh, on the other hand, it's not possible to talk about uh, Dr. Faustus without um, bringing the dude in. While the subject of Dr. Faustus is that of a composer who, whose creative trajectory points in exactly the, uh, this direction of intransigence, difficulty, and unresolved contradiction, Mann's novel itself, despite the darkness of its theme and the tragic backdrop of its setting, is nonetheless a creation of an artist working comfortably within the path of a method he established much earlier in his life. If it shows traces of one of or the other of Said's quote unquote late style characteristics, it's probably of the first category, that of an artist working in harmony who despite periods of doubt and blockage is fundamentally at home with his material and his mode of organizing it. Watching from afar the conflagration of his homeland, Mann determined to compose something that was consciously German and music for him was the German art. He said, if Faust is to be representative of the German soul, he must be musical. He has his narrator, with a wonderful name, Serenus Zeitblom, Leverkuhn's lifelong friend and Mann's frequent mouthpiece, proclaim early on in the novel that music is the most intellectual of all the arts, as was, as was evident from the fact that in it, as in no other art form, form and content are interwoven and absolutely one and the same. I love that. Mann himself had precious little training as a practical musician, having played the violin only infrequently in his youth. Nonetheless, he was obsessed with music, possessed by it. He felt that his craft as a writer of fiction was a kind of displaced musicianship. He labored arduously to achieve his, in his novels a similar kind of architectonic unity and thematic integration that he perceived in the works of his beloved Beethoven, Bach, and Wagner. His quest to make his texts reflect music's unity of form and content becomes a prime example of what the Mann scholar John Fetzer terms the musicalization of literature. Um, I think it's kind of an amazing thought, actually, although it originally comes from Walter Pater. 
The idea of the musicalization of literature is that, is that effect whereby the literary work seeks to emulate the condition of music with regard to structural components, thematic development, the leitmotif and other devices peculiar to the art of musical composition. Or as, as, as Walter Pater, uh, the great Renaissance scholar said, the arts in common aspire towards the principle of music, music being the typical or ideally consummate art. I'm not going to argue with that. In Dr. Faustus, the narrator proudly notes that in Germany, music enjoys the respect among the people which in France is given to literature. But the deep bond between Germany and music that man wishes to confirm is saturated with the nostalgia for the past, for the period when musique and culture, that is the culture in the sense of civilization, were one and the same. Even the title, Das Leben des Deutschen Tonsetzers Adrian Leverkuhn, Erzählt von einem Freund, has a nostalgic, almost quaint ring to it. Mann's choice of Tonsetzer, literally a tone or sound setter, is an intentionally archaic usage not comfortably translated into English. But by the interweaving of music and German identity and by essentializing their relationship, Mann took an exceedingly risky position, making the grand symbolic parallel between the willed self-destruction of a genius composer and the willed conflagration of an entire civilization. Eric Heller, normally deeply sympathetic to the author's intentions, takes Mann to task for this allegorical stretch. The author, he says, seeks to establish the much debated, much criticized, and much abused connections between the destiny of a German genius, of, of German genius, and the politics of the German tyranny. If he fails, it's in his full real, if he fails in its full realization, he fails because he is distracted by Germany. For the theme is not a German theme alone as little as Germany has any exclusive proprietary claims to modern art or to modern tyranny. The revulsion from the Third Reich can hardly be overstated morally, yet as a product of the intellectual imagination, Dr. Faustus is an overstatement of the problem of Germany. Throughout the novel, there lurks a dark presumption that genius and the daimonic are inextricably, inextricably linked. It's there in the easily identified hero model of Nietzsche Leverkuhn. It's there in Leverkuhn's Faustian pact and in the preternatural coldness of his personality. And of course, it's there in the larger metaphor, that of the genius of German civilization caught up in the daimonic self-immolation of Nazism. The musicologist Susan McClary sees this fatal rush to annihilation as a logical outcome of the way 19th century German romantics embraced radical notions of individualism, virulently spurning convention and making high art, that's capital H, capital A, into a fantasy of retreat. Retreat from society, retreat even from the discursive practices that allowed society to cohere. We need think no further of the lonely image of Nietzsche wandering the alpine heights of Sils Maria and living his solitary Spartan life while conjuring his Superman hero, Zarathustra. Like Nietzsche, or like Senta, the heroine, and Wagner's Flying Dutchman, 
stylistically advanced German music, in McClary's words, split itself off irrevocably from community in accordance with the romantic notions of individualistic expression. And this is precisely the ground upon which Dr. Faustus gets interesting for us composers living in the postmodern era. The trajectory of Leverkusen's stylistic evolution pretty much mirrors the accepted mythology of how high art and serious music evolved during the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th centuries. It is a mythology rehearsed endlessly by scholars, critics, writers, and even by composers themselves. It says that the conventions of tonality and its forms were exhausted or bankrupt. It also says that German music in particular, again in the words of Susan McClary, as the result of natural emancipatory impulses transcended social influences to take up residence in the realm of the purely musical. I say that in quotations. This myth is so powerful that its own self-justifications have largely been accepted and have prevailed as truth. And Leverkuhn, in his absorption with his magic squares and ultimate recourse to 12-tone technique, becomes the embodiment of the destroyer of conventions. Mann returns to the theme of German exceptionalism throughout the book. He zeroes in on the catastrophic results of a cultural self-image that sets itself apart from the rest of the world. But he can also be very pithy in drawing the line between the seriousness of German art and what he seems to regard as the frothy silliness of recent French culture, particularly that of the 1920s. In chapter 37, while Adrian, who by now is in complete recluse, living alone and hermetically absorbed in the writing of his oratorio, Apocalypse Cum Figuris, he receives an unexpected visit by a chauffeur-driven impresario called Saul Fittelberg, a garrulous peacock of a man, Polish by birth, who was there in the hopes of bringing Leverkusen to Paris as a kind of uh, zoological specimen of the German Künstler. Fittelberg both in appearance and in his profession, he's an enthusiastic promoter of avant-garde spectacles, strongly resembles Sergei Diaghilev. He has made of himself, he has made himself into a respected protagonist of avant-garde culture, uh, whom great artists call their friend. C'est la vérité, pure, simple, irrefutable. Uh, from my youth, I have uh, aspired to higher things, more intellectual and interesting, above all, whatever is a novelty and sensation. Uh, the scandalous today, which tomorrow will be the fashion, le dernier cri, the bestseller, in short, art. Au commencement, était le scandale. This is man's shot over the bow of the cultural milieu of Paris. The names Picasso, Satie, Joyce Pound, even Virgil Thompson are all dropped in the course of this somewhat heavy-handed but nonetheless very entertaining chapter, one that amplifies the seriousness of the Teutonic view of art compared with the frivolity and superficiality of post-war France. I'm talking about the first war. What sort of person is Adrian Leverkuhn? And what, if we could hear it, would his music sound like to us? Would we, listening to it in 2009, um, some 70 to 80 years after it 
supposed creation, recognize it as the epitome of the artistic expression of its time? I know that this might be an absurd question, but nonetheless, let's, let's go down this path of investigation just a bit. Mann later wrote that of all his fictional characters, he loved Leverkusen the most, more than Hanno Budenbrook, Brooks, uh, more than Hans Kastorp, the main figure in uh, Magic Mountain. Lovable is not the first adjective that springs to my mind upon reading the book. Says the narrator, human devotion he, Leverkusen, accepted, I would swear, often unconsciously. His indifference was so great that he was hardly ever aware what went on about him, what company he was in. I might compare his absentness to an abyss into which one's feelings toward him dropped soundless and without a trace. All about him was coldness. A composite of Luther, the Faust of the original chapbook, of Beethoven, Hugo Wolf, Nietzsche, and other representative Germans, Adrian is from the start a loner, a questioner, a doubter. Later, as he matures, his coldness and chronic inability to relate sees him withdrawing further and further from normal society, the perfect positioning for one who will break with convention. But he is a romantic without the heat. His only form of humor is sarcasm and brutal irony, although it must be said he's not lofty or an arrogant person. Harsh in his judgments about virtually everyone and everything, he is nonetheless infinitely harder on himself. As a child, he shows his singular gifts for curiosity about musical matters and for pattern recognition. His ear is uncommonly precise, and from an early age, he's able to distinguish intervallic relationships, pitches and tones that would pass by unnoticed by even the most gifted of other musicians. He has an exceptional sensitivity to tonal harmony, and we see him as a boy sitting at a dilapidated old harmonium in his uncle's musical instrument shop, improvising modulations between distant tonal centers. Even at a young age, he can identify a good piece of music merely by its appearance on the page. The young Adrian is drawn to mathematical relationships, keeping a diagram of what Mann calls magic squares pinned to his bedroom wall. This presumed connection between music and mathematics is a common image in the minds of most people when they think of what a composer, uh, when they think of a composer uh, to the point that it's become virtually a cliche. Music lovers imagine that we composers think in abstract numerical relations, manipulating individual notes and even whole formal chunks according to methods similar to those used in advanced mathematics. While it's true uh, that music can be numerated, treated as discrete data, and thus manipulated in the same way that mathematical symbols are, and we have composers like Milton Babbitt to show us how it can be done, most composers do not approach composing as an act of numerical conversion. My, my teacher, Leon Kirshner, enjoyed puncturing that myth uh, by likening what even the most sophisticated serial composers did to playing with arithmetic. Most composers I know tend to handle musical shapes consisting of pitches and rhythmic placement 
in time, more like a sculptor would handle clay or a painter paint. This, of course, doesn't mean that a lot of very careful pattern creation doesn't go into the act of writing music. Indeed, many composers are much stimulated by approaching their work by means of creating and manipulating patterns. And they have lots of historical precedent to cite. In emphasizing the obsessive search for order and organization, Thomas Mann endows his composer with a hypersensitive gift for the use of patterns, and in so doing, he lays the groundwork for what in his maturity will explain his obsession with objectivity, and ultimately with his adoption of the 12-tone technique as a means to achieve ultimate order. In his maturity, Leverkuhn is great in making unlike like. One knows his way of modifying rhythmically a fugal subject already in its first answer in such a way that despite a strict preservation of its thematic essence, it is as repetition no longer recognizable. I'm trying to imagine that fugue. Perhaps the most humanely satisfying theme in the book is the description of Adrian's long years of studies with the organist and sole music teacher in the small town of Kaiserischern, whose name has, beautiful name is Wendell Kretschmar. This is a touching and intimate bond uh, uh, between a devoted teacher and a brilliant student. What feels genuine about this relationship is the modesty of Kretschmar, the depth of his feeling not only for music but for literature and the other arts as well. It is, of course, Kretschmar who gives the famous lecture on Beethoven's Opus 111 Piano Sonata, a literary tour de force that may be the most traveled passage in all of Thomas Mann's work. But what appeals to me even more are the descriptions of the day-to-day -day music assignments, the exercises, the examinations of music from other styles, although still focusing fundamentally on German, and the experiments in orchestration. It reminded me of my own upbringing Adrian grows up in a small town in the era that was the last before the advent of mechanical reproduction of music. Hence, his musical education is always firsthand. He hears chamber music only when amateurs in his neighborhood play it. He's exposed to the canon of symphonic music by studying scores or by playing reductions at the piano. He hardly ever hears a real orchestra play because his town is too small to sponsor a concert. Nonetheless, his teacher submerges him in the techniques of advanced orchestration by making him study the scores of Debussy, Wagner, and Rimsky-Korsakov. The discussions on harmony are impressive to anyone who has struggled to wrestle the beast of tonal harmony to the ground. Mann has taken it upon himself to read at least a sizable part of Arnold Schoenberg's Harmonilehrer, his massive theoretical textbook on harmonic practice, and his efforts are evident to any knowledgeable reader of the novel. Still a young teen, Adrian is already aware of the constantly shifting universe of tonality. Relation is everything, he says to his childhood friend. And if you want to give it a more precise name, it's ambiguity. You know what I find? That music turns the equivocal into a system. Take this or that note, an F sharp, 
You can understand it so or respectively so. Perhaps it's a G-flat. You can understand it. Uh, you can think of it as sharpened or flattened. And you can, if you are clever, take advantage of the double sense as much as you like. And this, of course, is the essence of musical modulation. Uh, as someone who grew up in a small town and studied with the one person in that town who knew anything at all about harmony and counterpoint, I respond very strongly to Wendell Kretschmar. He's a teacher for whom popular success and cultivating a large audience is simply not of concern. He's a man gifted with great and urgent riches, richness of thought, passionately addicted to giving out information. His embarrassing stutter only amplifies the gap between his personal modesty and his considerable wisdom. Kretschmar's famous Opus 111 lecture is just one of a series that he gives indefatigably throughout a whole season in the, in the hall of the Society of Activities for the Common Well to an audience of rarely more than a dozen or more. The narrator says, they were a failure in the first place because our population had on principle no use for lectures, and secondly, because his themes were not popular but rather capricious or out of the ordinary. I was comforted to read that. Man is drawing a clear line between entertainment and art, between casual exposure and deep understanding. The young Leverkuhn absorbs this difference. This, uh, in, excuse me. The young Lever, Leverkuhn absorbs this difference early on, and as an adult, his indifference to success, even to the idea of winning an audience for his work, has its roots in these humble but genuine small-town experiences. But there are suppositions in this same famous passage, this lecture on Beethoven's 111, that nonetheless trouble me. Adorno's fingerprints are all over this. And Mann seems to buy into the particular view of Beethoven that amplifies this idea of the intransigence of the music, portrays it as eccentric and full of extremes, as a fractured landscape, again, Adorno's words. Here, here's Kretschmar's description of the music. In the works of the last period, Beethoven's friends and admirers stood with heavy hearts before a process of dissolution and alienation, of amounting into an air no longer familiar or safe to meddle with. Even before a plus ultra, wherein they had been able to see nothing else than a degeneration of tendencies previously present, an excess of introspection and speculation an extravagance of minutiae and scientific musicality applied sometimes to such simple material as the Arietta theme of the monstrous movement of variations which forms the second part of the sonata. And what follows is one of the more conspicuous canards uh, in the literature of music poetics, that of the duality between harmonic subjectivity and polyphonic objectivity. Uh, these are my words, not uh, Kretschmar's, or my opinion. The implication is that polyphony, being contrapuntally conceived music, is more impersonal, more scientific, more the result of systems that are set in motion according to specifically designed laws that thus behave objectively, presumably less subject, 
to emotional caprice and impulsive subjectivity of the composer. The late Beethoven works, according to Kretschmar, and thus presumably according to Thomas Mann and to Adorno, are untouched, untransformed by the subjective. Convention in the guise of familiar musical tropes that we encounter in these works, particularly the three final sonatas, conventions like song forms, arietas, fugues, dance forms, appear in a baldness, one might say exhaustiveness, an abandonment of the self with an effort more majestic and awful than any reckless plunge into the personal. In these forms, the subjective and the conventional assume a new relationship conditioned by death. Here's what Edward Said says on the same topic. Late style Beethoven, remorselessly alienated and obscure, becomes the prototypical modern aesthetic form and by virtue of its distance from, from and rejection of bourgeois society, and even its rejection of a quiet death, it acquires an even greater significance and defiance for that very reason. And here's Adorno himself on this same sonata. It is subjective subjectivity that forcibly brings the extremes together in the moment fills the dense polyphony with its tensions, brings it breaks it apart with a unisono, and disengages itself, leaving the naked tone behind, that sets the mere phrase as a monument to what has been, I should say, to what has been, marking a subjectivity turned to stone. The caesuras, the sudden discontinuities, that more than anything else characterizes the very late Beethoven are those moments of breaking away. The work is silent at the instant when it is left behind and turns its emptiness outward. I like these interpretations or explanations or visions, call them what you will. I find them evocative. I find them poetic. But how can we not avoid acknowledging that they themselves are examples of extreme subjectivity? Harmonic subjectivity would, for instance, imply that the affect of feeling tone or feeling tone of a chord or sequence of chords is something born not out of the logical linear growth of motivic material, but rather as a subjective caprice of the composer. It's hard not to detect a whiff of the pedant here a presumption that the only good harmony is the one derived by the concordance of individual part movement. Polyphony is order, a normative grammar of construction. That coherent symbolic order and enduring truth content that characterizes the modernist vision. The whole drama of the last works of Beethoven seems to me to be emphatically sub, uh, an emphatically subjective one, that of pushing conventional forms to their limits, either through fracturing them or through reordering or through massive expansion of their properties. Things are pushed to the extreme, or as the musicologist Leo Treitler terms it, the codes are liquidated. And the piling up of any number of different topoi results in what he so wittily calls genre shock. Think, for example, just of the uh, 
the finale to the Ninth Symphony, which presents a bizarre parade, starting with a thunderous attention-getting opening, cameo recalls from previous movements, atmospheric tone painting, operatic recitative, vocal ensemble, song with accompaniment, military marches, fugue, choral declamation, and so on and so on. This, to me, is extreme music with a capital E. Is there any example anywhere in previous music of the speed attained by the scherzo of the F major Opus 135 quartet? Is there any slower music than the Heilige Dankgesang Molto Adagio of Opus 132, the A minor quartet? Is there a more massive symphonic sonata allegro than the opening of the Ninth Symphony? Is there a more willful rearranging, uh, rearranging of the order of a string quartet than the Opus 131 C sharp minor? A more intimate and emotionally complex slow movement than that of the Hammerklavier? Or a fugue with the outrageously mani manic activity of that same sonata? These structures, while at times employing the techniques of the objective, i.e. polyphony, are nonetheless products of a powerfully aggressive will. And it is hard to imagine a body of work more subjective in its scope. It's a romantic reading of Beethoven to find that these works represent a crisis of language. <coughs> Rather, we might better be able to see the late works as that of an artist in the process of heating up to the boiling point conventional structures the sonata form, the fugue, the variation form, the scherzo, et cetera, et cetera, investing each with a superhuman, powerfully emphatic ego, not shattering them or exploding them, but rather using them for vehicles for one of the most imposing displays of subjectivity in the entire history of art. This is not pure music by any means, despite the efforts of generations of analysts to extract from it its social, historical, and psychological setting and see it as purely music. One of the themes that underpins the novel, of course, is the conflict between freedom and rigor, which I suppose is another way of saying, at least in Thomas Mann's world, the subjective versus the objective. We see early on in the novel a metaphor evolving between a quest for aesthetic order on Leverkuhn's part in the Germany he lives in and a quest for order in the Germany he lives in, in the slow but steady growth of that seductive compulsion to order that will culminate in Nazism. For Eric Heller, Leverkuhn's impulse towards the purely objective paradoxically inches his music ever more closely towards the popular tyranny. This is one of the brutal ironies and bitter truths of the book. He sees the composer's quest for objectivity and the fascists' urge to a neat, man managed society as equivalent in their enthusiastic readiness to escape from the embarrassments of subjectivity into an ordered polyphonic objectivity, from the drama of being a self into the choral discipline of the collective. In chapter two, uh, chapter 22, one in which Adorno's ghost hovers most conspicuously, Adrian states his goal of wresting music from, the, from convention by subjecting it to the refiner's fire 
of complete organization. I will tell you what I understand by strict style, he says. I mean the complete integration of all musical dimensions, their neutrality towards each other due to complete organization. He then goes on to give the by now famous description, at least famous amongst us composers, of his song setting. That is the project of what is a product of what is essentially Schoenberg's 12-tone technique, being entirely derived from a series of interchangeable intervals that control both the vertical and horizontal characteristics of the music. In a display of a frequently encountered technical game, particular to serial music, Leverkuhn has composed a piece in which are nested the initials of the name Hetera Esmeralda, making of the five notes, B, E, A, E, E flat, a motivic cell that governs both the song's melodic and harmonic integrity. H, by the way, is, is German, standing for uh, the pitch class B, and S for E flat. It's not a grand leap from this example to real pieces like Alban Berg's Chamber Concerto, already 20 years old by the time Dr. Faustus was written, and most assuredly familiar to Thomas Mann. The Berg Concerto utilizes motivic cells made from the initials of his teacher, Arnold Schoenberg, and his friend Anton Webern and himself. Mann has already set up the leitmotif of Hedera Esmeralda much earlier in the story introducing it first as an enchanting tropical butterfly in the collection of his father, and then later as Leverkuhn's secret sobriquet for the young prostitute who presumably infects him with the disease that will ultimately drive him insane. These kinds of compositional code games were nothing new, even at the time of Schoenberg's development of the 12th tone system. Bach employed them with gusto, especially enjoying the interweaving of his own initials into various contrapuntal displays, and of course it was very common during the Middle Ages. Zeitblom marvels at the description of all this heady arcana. A striking thought, rational organization, through and through, one might indeed call it, you would gain an extraordinary unity and congruity, a sort of astronomical regularity, and legality would be in obtained thereby. At the peak of his powers, Leverkuhn composes an oratorio, Apocalypse Cum Figuris, based on the famous woodcuts by Durer, the most familiar image of which is, of course, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. By this time, Leverkuhn has moved to a small, out-of-the-way village in southern Bavaria. When his friend Zeitblom visits him and has shown the work in progress, he is full of admiration for the compositional wizardry of the, of the piece's invention, but he's nonetheless deeply disturbed to realize that Leverkuhn's music, in a quest for ultimate objective order, is moving towards an alarming aestheticism. He says, in my heart, I doubted the authenticity of what he did. Had he, a man of our time, any true claim to the sphere in which he immersed himself, in which he struggled to recreate by means of an extremely sophisticated technique. I suspected, in short, the kind of aestheticism which exposed to most aggravating doubts the opinion my friend once uttered, that the antithesis to bourgeois culture is not barbarism, but collectivism. Zeitblom finally is forced to realize that the oratorio Apocalypse Cum Figuris, for all its technical majesty, 
is both bloody barbarism and bloodless intellectuality. He hates it, he loves it, he fears it. In the chorus of children that opens the oratorio second part, he hears a piece of cosmic music of the spheres, icily clear, glassily transparent, of brittle dissonances indeed, but withal of an inaccessibly unearthly beauty of sound, filling the heart with longing without hope. And this piece, which is one touched and ravished even the reluctant, is in its musical essence the devil's laughter all over again. I have to note that here in this, one of the last chapters of the novel, with his descriptions of Leverkusen's imaginary oratorio, Thomas Mann absolutely soars, imagining in rich detail this immensely complex, colorful, technically advanced, and emotionally disturbing piece of music. I, as a composer, am hard put to think of another example in the history of Western art where a master of one discipline, in this case a novelist, so brilliantly and in such detail imagines a creation in another discipline. Apocalypse cum figuris is a work of religious vision touched with, according to the narrator, mass modernity. The narrator's role is sung by a tenor of almost castrato-like high register, whose chilly crow, like the voice of a eunuch, objective, reporter-like, stands in terrifying contrast to the content of his catastrophic announcements. And you can't help but think of those early radio broadcasts of Hitler when you think of that sound. The oratorio is scored for a gigantic ensemble, including a double chorus, children's chorus, orchestra, chamber orchestra, and loudspeakers. And here is what the loudspeakers do. And let's remind ourselves that this is a piece premiered in 1926, uh, supposedly conducted by Otto Klemper, imagined by an opera, uh, by an author living in 1945. The loudspeakers achieve an otherwise never realized gradation in the volume and distance of the music, musical sound of, of such a kind that by means of the loudspeaker, some parts are brought into prominence while others recede as distant incidental. Thomas Mann got there before Stockhausen did. Charles Ives had attempted to do exactly the same thing in his fourth symphony, written between 1910 and 1916. Only Ives, instead of employing loudspeakers, utilized a carefully graded system of dynamics in the orchestration. His goal, as described to me by the Ives scholar James Sinclair, was to achieve shifting sensations of proximity and distance from the listener's point of view. Thus, a single flute <coughs> playing pianissimo two feet in front of you might have the same loudness as a full brass band playing fortissimo a thousand feet off in the distance. The choral writing in Apocalypse Cum Figuris suggests to me nothing that has existed at the time of man's imagining. Only a few passages in Schoenberg's Gurleader come to mind. Nonetheless, it's indeed possible um, that Mann had heard Gurleader, at least on a recording, 
Much has been made of how the later Schoenberg, the Schoenberg of the 12-tone system, had served as the primary musical model of Adrian Leverkuhn's final composition, <clears throat> The Lamentation of Dr. Faustus. Almost done. <clears throat> After the novel was published, Schoenberg read it and was insulted, demanding, if not a public retraction, at least an acknowledgment. This request put Schoenberg in a paradoxical position. He was justifiably enraged that his this final fictional composition by Leverkuhn, composed largely in the 12-tone style, would be the work of a man already descended into insanity. Schoenberg had every reason to be insulted by the implication that such a compositional technique should be associated with a loss of reason and with the ascendance of madness. Yet Schoenberg also wanted Thomas Mann to at least recognize that the 12-tone method was his, Schoenberg's, intellectual property, and thus jealously claimed his property back from the devil himself, as Heller Riley remarks. The irony is not lost on anyone who is aware of the nature of Schoenberg's music written during that period. A sizable number of Schoenberg's later works, many of them 12-tone compositions, were in fact deeply religious and spiritually committed pieces. Not the least among was his opera Moses and Aaron, his work for narrator and orchestra survivor from Warsaw and Kol Nidre. Dr. Faustus is an overwhelming and overarching achievement, one that, as I've already noted, is a uniquely courageous and imaginative act in which an artist, in this case a novelist, imagines artworks in another medium, in this case music. It's a work of learning, immense sophistication and inexhaustible cultural reference. And it manages to skirt the shoals of pedantry, perhaps because of its author's paradistic exuberance. And those are his own words. In a diary entry made just as he was beginning to commit to writing the novel, Thomas Mann wrote to himself, heaven grant that it would prove possible to let it partake a little of the artistic playfulness and jest, irony, a little of travesty, and a little of higher humor. Mann's ability to identify the toxic union of intellectualism, aestheticism, and barbarism is, for Eric Heller, his greatest and most courageous achievement. The book's basic motif, as Mann himself wrote, is the onset of cultural sterility and that despair which predisposes a man to make a pact with the devil. For Heller, man's thinking, uh, man's linking of the quest for order at all expense, I should uh, read that again. For Heller, man's linking of the quest for order at all expense with artistic sterility and political collectivism is his greatest achievement. It is through the analysis and artistic presentation of a highly sophisticated primitivism that Dr. Faustus becomes and will no doubt remain one of the profoundest literary documents of our age. For me, as a composer, the, the lesson learned on first reading and confirmed on further readings is that creativity is as unknowable and as unpredictable as is the human heart. It brings to light the folly 
of trying to establish normative attitudes of taste and aesthetic correctness in art. Yesterday's Henry James is tomorrow's Hemingway, and the day after that's William Burroughs. Schoenberg, who comes closest to fulfilling the philosopher's model for an ideal composer, turns out to have been much less of an influence in shaping the future course of music than the supposedly infantilistic and primitivistic Stravinsky. And the rise of that beast called popular culture, for all its powers of corruption and consumer-driven value system, has nonetheless provided an even greater influence in shaping and transforming our contemporary art. Strangely, for all its problems, popular culture remains a bizarre kind of bulwark against just the sterility that man warned about. Today's younger composers draw ever more enthusiastically from sources and inspirations that have little or nothing to do with the narrow tunnel vision that typified the theoretical battles so expertly described in this novel. Part of the tragedy of Adrian Leverkuhn is his small worldview. For all his brilliance and for all his imaginative powers, this composer has a perspective that confines his thinking to a tightly constricted canon of musical thought, essentially the Central European tradition of only a few hundred years. Extrapolating aesthetic norms from such a limited slice of world culture becomes a difficult, if not dubious, undertaking. Thomas Mann seems to have come to this conclusion only through a very roundabout manner. His novel is its own work of art and its own critique, its own grappling with the quest for order and ultimately an acknowledgment of the imponderable and unruly and unpredictable activity of artistic expression. Thank you. This lecture was presented in the fall of 2009 as part of the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. The Tanner Lectures are presented annually at select universities and were established by Obert Clark Tanner as a means of contributing to the intellectual and moral life of mankind. John Adams spoke on October 28, 2009 at the Whitney Humanities Center.